This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, The Last of the Company of Too Many by Eric Rem and The Yellow Bag by Trika Eptimova. The Last of the Company of Too Many Written and read by Eric Rem Listening time, 5 minutes, 5 seconds The Last of the Company of Too Many It was taking too long to get to the party. After driving too far in a car with too many people, Jerry was stuck some 200 miles past his intended exit. They crowded him against his steaming Volvo wagon, and he got too many to move more out of suffocation than from any sort of plan. They left the wreck on the median with a napkin beneath the right wiper that announced, It's yours! in pencil. It was in between rush hours. The sun burned from the middle of the sky. Their dragging feet echoed down the empty highway. Jerry was the first to talk, despite the cold shoulders he received after realizing too late that his GPS was taking them upstate to his Nana's house instead of the city. Talk about how important the party was. The party everyone's talking about. The party of the century. The party! As they passed ascending exits, too many voices rose. One at a time, then all at a time. Yeah, they can't give up and go home. Yeah, they don't want to miss out. Yeah, they all took the week off anyway. What a waste to waste it, yeah! The first of the company of too many was abandoned to a bus bench in Lafayette. The second to a frantic mother in a BMW who offered too many people a ride and took two more with her. One stayed in Damascus at a diner that didn't make her take her shoes off the table. Another bolted into the woods with his backpack before the car being chased by police sirens sped into view. Jerry hitched a ride when his final remaining companion was lost to a pretty smile at a gas station convenience store. Jerry was driven through the gates of the city and dropped off outside a closed deli connected to a long stretch of concrete wall covered with jagged graffiti declaring tulips and mazer and a lot of things Jerry couldn't read. Reinforced steel double doors stood near the end of the block, sprayed a mural of flowers and thunderclouds, grinning killer bees, rose thorns, and a hundred sharpied names, said Sharpie hanging from a string tied to a nail. He added his own name to the tip of a lightning bolt before pounding on the door, hoping to be heard over the base that shook the street. Jerry arrived at the party three days and sixteen hours late. Inside, they had moved on to body painting. The wide room was splashed and speckled with colors that swirled in vortexes or burst flaring. The carpet smelled of latex and spilt wine. Women resembling gardens, tigers, and celestial bodies held thin-stemmed glasses and mingled with dripping men in inky suits. The DJ and Desert Camo switched records with leather gloves. A man of grapes and a woman of gears lounged atop the bar. A pair of skeletons danced with fireworks while a jack of hearts told a joke to the autumn leaves. The next morning, Jerry called his manager while wiping gold off his chest. He would be late coming back. Yes, he's sorry. Yes, yes, he's okay. No, he won't miss the weekend rush. And no, Troy doesn't need to pick him up in his, yes, his brand new Ford pickup truck. 
He clicked close his cell and attached his muzzle as the band warmed up. Three pigs and a wolf, surrounded by a rabid crowd of party animals wrapped in furs and patches of rug, wigs and bodysuits. Jerry Bunny hopped, jitterbugged, and fox trotted among lion and fish, chimp and crab and dancing bears and funky chickens. Jerry called again during the burlesque, high-heeled and corseted, tassel-chested, every cheek red. Can't leave yet, sorry, Dad, don't send Troy. Applebee's will go on without him, just a little while more. Promise, promise to call Mom, promise. His phone let out a despairing beep. He cast it aside to the growing pile of its brothers stacked in the corner, cold and square and quiet. They spent a day in silence, communicating with eyes and hands. Charlie Chaplin twirled his cane beside Lillian Gish. The many faces of Lon Chaney mingled with other silent stars, all illuminated from projectors set on tripods duct-taped to the floor. The next was celebrated in perfect stillness. They would revel in the 80s, 90s, and today. Rocked themes of heavy metal and disco fever. Popped champagne wearing evening gowns and tuxedos. Wore laurel crowns with their togas and rope sandals. They threw food, immersed in cocktails, banished gravity, floated from earth, ripped plaster from the walls, opened holes in the roof, let rain cascade in waterfalls. The ground shook and split down the center. The foundation cracked and crumbled. They burned down the house, raised the roof and cast it aside. The city quarantined the block. They raved, waving at the helicopters. They bathed in the flashing lights and took out their own megaphones. The barricades fell as tenants flooded from their homes to dance on the blockades. Vendors closed store grates, cracking glow sticks. Sirens blared and drums pounded. And as confetti rained, the mass expanded, engulfing the surrounding burrows. Nothing would stop them. Stop them and their party. And they won't stop the party until the party is done with them. Eric Rem graduated from UMass Amherst with a BA in Theater and English. He lives in Boston, where he works odd jobs to support his writing habit, sometimes doing musicals or karaoke. His blog of fictions and doodles is at erehm.tumblr.com. The Yellow Bag, written by Zradka Evdimova, read by Kelly Shriver, listening time 13 minutes, 51 seconds. The Yellow Bag, by Stravka Evtimova. I had been watching John for a month now. He was tall and scraggly, and his shirt was so old there was no color left in it. He spoke little, and his eyes were dark and quiet. I didn't know why they frightened me. They were full of nights and cold winds, those eyes. He mowed the peasants' meadows and built their barns. He killed their pigs at Christmas and cleaned their backyards. He lived in a deserted cottage far from the other houses, in a dell overgrown with nettles and elder trees. I thought his place looked beautiful when it rained, for when it rained, John sang. I crept near the open window of his room and listened. In my mind, his voice was bigger than the night with the freezing wind and the black clouds in it. Other villagers, too, sneaked near his place. The harder it rained, the bigger his voice was. There was a question I'd wanted to ask John all the time. His cap was ancient, and his trousers were soiled and frayed. His shoes were torn, but he always carried a yellow bag on his back. It was quite a big thing, and it was clean— a clean yellow bag, a torn shirt, 
old shoes, and an unshaven face. That was what John was. I was scared to ask him what he carried in his bag. When he sat down to eat his meager lunch, a chunk of cheese and bread, he carefully laid the yellow thing by his side, eyeing it as he chewed. I had asked most of the neighbors in the village about the bag. No one knew anything. My best friend Dina thought he carried brandy in it, and she said I was crazy to like a man who most probably was not all there. I don't like him, I said. I'm just curious. The whole village knew what happened when I said I was just curious. The thing I was curious about vanished, and no one found it again. I stole the thing. The cellar of my house was clean and well-swept. I stored the swiped items elsewhere, in Dina's attic. Or I threw them in the shallow gorge, where the river flowed as thin as a pencil. Don't, my best friend Dina said. He might need it. I was afraid of the dead moons in John's eyes, and at the same time I felt like having them all to myself. What's in your bag? I asked him one day. It was the first time that I had spoken to him. He stopped and looked at me. His eyes were distant, lusterless. He wasn't listening to me. If you don't tell me what you carry in that bag, I'll steal it from you, I said. He didn't say anything. I'll steal it from you and I'll burn it. I looked him straight in the eye, and I was not sure he understood. I mean it, I whispered, wanting to hit him and hit him hard. I carry my soul in the bag, he said. His voice was deep and rich, and it made me jump. What? You heard me, he repeated. Oh, come off it, I almost shouted. It was hot, and I thought the blazing sun had made the man go crazy. My soul's big. It's too narrow for it inside me, he said, and then he left me in the hot, bristling afternoon and climbed the hill to his dilapidated cottage, to the nettles and elder trees I liked so much. What did he tell you, my friend Dina asked, itching to learn the secret and spread the word about it far and wide. You wouldn't like to know, I said. She was silent for a while. She knew me well, and she did everything I told her to do. That was the only reason I had not sent her packing. I hated nosy neighbors, and I had a good way of getting rid of them. My relatives and friends that didn't mind their own business and poked their noses in mine lost something precious, a coat, a ring, or a watch they treasured. Everybody suspected me. No one had ever caught me red-handed. I got on with guys who obeyed what I told them to do. The ones who didn't lost items they held most dear, and lost them for good. If a bloke felt like breaking with me, he gave me all I wanted first. If he didn't, he lost it all anyway. Often something unexpected occurred, a barn burning or the engine of a car dead. Other unpleasant things happened, too. That was all. The day John came to mow Dina's meadow, he carried his clean yellow bag on his back. Can I see what your soul looks like? I asked. I had long waited for him to mow Dina's meadow. No, he said. Then he went his way, staring straight ahead, as if I was an old bench or a heap of dead leaves on the ground. I'll teach you to respect a thief, I thought. I'll show you. In the afternoon, I sneaked to John's hut. I sat on the wooden bench and waited for him. I was surprised by how neat the only room was. There was a bed, a table, and a box which was not locked. Two more shirts, both of them frazzled and bleached. That was all there was in that box. I searched the place, and I found nothing of interest. It felt as though no one lived in that clean, empty place. There was no food, no drinking water. 
No underwear, no household items, no linen. Did John really live here? I asked myself. He didn't seem to be surprised to see me sitting on his bench in his room. I brought you some leek soup, I said. He didn't even look at me. What's in your bag, I grunted after he sat on the bed, distant and silent. You know what it is, he said. I've told you, it is too narrow for it inside me. He stared at me as if I had not already heard that lie. Let me see it. No way. He ate the soup I'd brought. Thank you, he said. Now go. I don't want to go. But when he lay on the bed and yawned, I left the room. You don't know me. I'll show you, I thought. I peeped through the keyhole and saw him thrust the bag under his frayed shirt. Okay, I could wait long enough. When I looked through the dirty window, he had drifted to sleep. Slowly and noiselessly, I opened the door. I had prudently taken grease to make the rusty hinges as silent as an empty purse. I tiptoed to his bed, reached out, extracted the clean yellow bag from his shirt, and slipped soundlessly to the door. He didn't budge. His breathing was even and deep. I had expected he would snore, that tall, thin man. The bag was as light as a box of matches. I pressed it close to my chest as I padded out of the room. Outside, the nettles and the leaves of the elder trees were all wet with the rain. The clouds in the sky moved slowly like camels of a lost caravan, and the old gossip, the wind, hissed to the trees. I didn't mind the cold. Our village was a small one, a dozen houses at the bottom of a shallow valley, which to me looked like a cauldron, surrounded on all sides by steep slopes and bald, craggy peaks. At the bottom of the cauldron, our nameless river flowed as thin as a pencil in summer and bigger than the sky in the autumn. I loved its nameless cutting water. Looking at it made me think of my childhood, the puny child I was, thin like a pencil and as sharp and brittle. My mother said she'd go to buy me a doll, but bought me nothing. As a matter of fact, she didn't come back home. I heard my cousins say she ran off with the guy who came to mow our meadow. That was what our village was, a place where men came to mow the meadows. Those men never went away alone. They took a woman from the village with them, and a child remained at the window pane waiting for a pretty little doll. Then Dad said he'd buy me a dog, but I knew he wouldn't come back. I'd noticed he'd taken his heavy rucksack with him. Even my cousins didn't know whom he ran off with. Maybe he simply drank too much, and that day the nameless river as big as the mountain had taken him. He had told me it was a shame to cry. I couldn't open the yellow bag. Its strings were fastened too tightly. They could not scare me. I always carried a sharp knife on me. I was a happy child. I built shallow pools in the river, and I told the fish fairy tales. I had no one else to tell them to. It was on the river bank that I had stolen a skirt for the first time. It had been so easy. I thought it was unfair that my grandmother should punish me after she saw me with the big stolen skirt on. She should have said I was such a nimble-fingered girl. Not one of the dozen women saw me pilfer the thing. She forbade me to go to the pool for a month instead and I learned my lesson. I had to burn the things I stole. What wonderful light the burning stolen trousers, bags, and gloves gave. The yellow bag had long straps I failed to untie. Well, my knife was as sharp as a dog's fangs. I wetted its blade every week ever since Dad went out to buy me a puppy. 
That blade was the reason why the village respected me. The yellow leather was thick and strong. I worked hard for an hour before I cut out a small hole in it. Then I peeked inside. The thing I saw looked like a sponge. It was so white I suddenly felt dizzy. I pushed my little finger through the narrow opening and pressed the sponge. Its surface was cold to the touch. It felt very smooth. Then I cut and pulled at the leather until the slit was big enough to insert my hand into the bag. Something had happened. The sponge was no longer there. The thing I touched was either a stone or a slab of ice. I looked inside. The stone was black. A minute before, it had been dazzlingly bright. I hit it with my fist. A cry of pain flew from the rundown hut. I recognized John's voice. I stood in my tracks. John's voice was so beautiful. Then I remembered. When Grandma punished me, I went to the pool I'd built, and I told it I hated her. That was not true. She gave me bread, and she told me tales. She had taught me everything I knew. When you come to the river at night, you'll see, she said. The pool mirrors the stars. They are all yours. The stars in the pool were tiny like breadcrumbs, and the moon was a silver quince. I drank the water from the pool, and I drank the stars in it, and the night in it. Maybe that was why I saw nights in John's eyes. I'd drunk so many cold moons, I could recognize them when I saw them in someone's eyes. I scratched the black stone in the bag with my nails. One more cry of pain sank into the cold afternoon. I seized the bag, ran back to John's hut, and hurled the yellow thing inside. A dark, heavy ball fell onto the floor, thudded and rolled under the table. I didn't know what happened after that. I ran and ran until I could no longer breathe. In the evening, I cooked leek soup. I missed my grandmother. I missed her so much. She was dead, and the moons she had told me fairy tales about shone no more. I didn't cry. I thought of the water I had drunk, hoping I wouldn't be so lonely after I had moons and stars in me. Dina was not my best friend. A friend didn't obey you. A friend told you the truth and cared for you in spite of it. Somebody was knocking at the door. John. Are you hungry? I asked. I've cooked soup. He didn't say anything. I thought of my mother, who had gone with a man that had come to mow the meadow behind our house. And I thought of father, who drank so much after mother didn't come back home. Who are you? I asked. His face was bruised and scratched, a thin, handsome face. It rained, and I loved the raindrops that rolled on his cheeks. The rain had made the nameless river as big as the wind. It would give it deep pools. You are a thief, John said. Yes, I said. I know, he said, his words as soft as breadcrumbs. His wild hair was wet. He looked so thin in his frazzled shirt. I'm the one the thieves steal from, he said. Thank you for the soup. His smile was quiet sunset. I have to go, Jane. There are other thieves in the world who are waiting to steal all I have from me. He touched my hand. I've never met a thief like you, he said. I liked his voice. The soup was magnificent. He stood up and walked to the door. He closed it, and he closed the world after him. Then I noticed something on the table. It resembled a sponge. When I looked at it closely, I knew what it was. A stone, a black one I recognized. This is crazy, I thought, scared. John, hey, John, John, I ran out of the house. 
You forgot this, I shouted, waving the thing that gleamed in my hand. As light as a box of matches, as bright as the moon. Will you keep my soul for me, he said. It will feel much better with you. I could not breathe. I could not speak. You are beautiful, he said. You are my nameless river that keeps my stars in its pools for me. I couldn't say anything. I felt like crying. The end. Sradka Eptimova was born in Bulgaria, where she works as a literary translator from English, German, and French. Her most recent short story collection is titled Pale and Other Postmodern Bulgarian Stories. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.